The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Good to see you. You too. Thank you. With the imposition of the modernist changes wrought by the Second Vatican Council, a great majority of Catholics were led away from the true faith. A remnant remains, however, and Satan, never being satisfied so long as any souls possess the true faith, determined to set about destroying even this remnant of traditionalists. So the modernist crisis in the church created a crisis of authority. And it is this crisis which presented Satan with the opportunity to attack traditionalists. Bishops are essential to securing the future of any Catholic group. But with the crisis of authority in the church, traditional bishops are a hard thing to come by. It naturally followed then that Satan would affect much confusion about the consecration of traditional bishops. One such case in particular revolves around Bishop Took. Having performed multiple consecrations under very dubious and doubtful circumstances, his actions have been the source of a great rift of tradi among traditionalists for many years. The Society of St. Pius V has distinguished itself by being the chief critic of Bishop Took's problematic Episcopal consecrations. Naturally, as a result of the hardline stance taken by the society, she has received a great deal of backlash. <coughs> so perhaps the most well-known of this backlash comes from one Mario Dirksen. Several years ago, Mr. Dirksen wrote an open letter to the Society of St. Pius V in which he seriously criticized the society's stance on the Took consecrations. He claims that in the course of his meticulous studies on this topic, he has been led to the inevitable conclusion that the Took consecrations must be accepted as both valid and licit. Seeing as how the simple layman, Mr. Dirksen, holds no position of authority in any traditional society, and also given the fact that his study produced no new information, the Society of St. Pius V has, up until this point, never issued any sort of response to Mr. Dirksen. This lack of a response on the part of the Society of St. Pius V has erroneously been interpreted as a sign of weakness. This has been the prevailing attitude in traditional circles over the last several years, so in the words of Father Jenkins, it is time. Tonight's program, then, will be surrounding the topic of the Took consecrations and, furthermore, Mr. Mario Dirksen's study surrounding these consecrations. So before we begin uh, to examine all of, of Mario's study, Father, I'd like for you to just briefly give us a, a bit of background regarding the consecrations and the circumstances around, around these consecrations. You've uh, you spent many years studying these, these consecrations, and yourself and two other priests of the Society of St. Pius V actually went to Germany and, and interviewed two of the eyewitnesses of these consecrations. So perhaps there's no one better qualified than yourself to give us this information. Well, I'm sure there are others who are uh, qualified, as well qualified, or better qualified than I. I apologize, Tom, too. I still have a bit of the remnants, re remnants of a cold <clears throat> and some bronchitis. So if I have a 
some coughing problems. Uh, excuse me for that. Uh, I just returned from the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And again, the exposure to, to the elements there has uh, just prolonged the symptoms, but uh, I ask your forgiveness for that. Certainly. Um, I'm grateful to you for uh, uh, bringing up this, this question because it is still a burning question among traditional Catholics and would-be traditional Catholics who are following the Took line of bishops and uh, don't acknowledge that there is a serious problem with them. Uh, as you know, um, Monsieur Lefebvre, Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, began his, what we know as the Society of St. Pius, the Society of St. Pius X, uh, back in uh, 1970. Uh, he was asked uh, by seminarians, actually, to find a good seminary for them in the wake of Vatican II. And when he really couldn't find a seminary he could recommend, uh, they asked him to, to start something or do something for them, and he did. And so he started the Society of St. Pius X, the priestly fraternity of... Uh, uh, St. Pius X, uh, so that they could have a place to get a good priestly formation, be ordained priests as traditional priests. And uh, roughly about the same time, there was a Vietnamese bishop named Archbishop Nodintuk, Pierre Martin Nodintuk, who had been the Archbishop of Hoi in, uh, I think that's the pronunciation, in Vietnam. And uh, Archbishop Nodintuk began to consecrate bishops. He started in Palmar de Troya with a false apparition or false vote, actually uh, locutionists, or they're supposed to be hearing voices, heavenly voices. Uh, and um, he supposedly was summoned to uh, this place, Palmar de Troya, uh, and uh, he wound up consecrating a couple of bishops, ordaining some priests there. And it was all based on the flimsiest uh, fabrication of uh, messages from heaven. <clears throat> so Archbishop Took's um, career as a traditional Catholic bishop uh, began under the most dubious of circumstances. As a matter of fact, he had been at Vatican II just some years before, and we have on record from the Council Daybook that at Vatican II he had intervened twice, and uh, both times that he intervened, uh, again, the interventions manifested some um, problems with his thinking. Uh, for example, the Council Daybook records that Archbishop took <clears throat> intervened at the council once to give a talk about how the church had oppressed women and now it was time for the church to admit women to their rightful places of responsibility and leadership in the church. Certainly not a traditional Catholic idea, but a very liberal modernist idea. The Council of the Day book also records the instant that uh, Monsignor took, took the microphone at Vatican II and was complaining that while non- Catholic Christians, Protestants, had been invited to the council uh, that conspicuously missing from the council were the non-Christians, those uh, uh, pagans, you know, mm -hmm. pagan representatives. Uh, 
thereupon uh, one of the council fathers interrupted Archbishop Tug and pointed out to him that not only had the non-Christians been invited, but in fact they were seated, and they were seated practically directly in front of him as he was speaking. At which point uh, Archbishop Fick took, took, simply left the microphone and walked away. And um, So neither of these actually uh, would you consider to be a trend of success. Neither of them really was the voice of traditional Catholicism at Vatican II, to say the least. And so already there, Monsignor Took began to uh, show that there was something not quite right, something amiss there. And of course, shortly afterwards, um, of course, the, um, his brother, uh, Diem, was overthrown as president in Vietnam, assassinated, uh, the family property all confiscated. Um, and so after the council, Archbishop Took uh, did not return to Vietnam. He could not, could not return to Vietnam. Uh, as it turns out, he was sort of a, a, adopted, he was taken in uh, by a French bishop, uh, in this case, uh, to be a Nova Cyril bishop, and um, a follower of the council. And uh, this was at the, um, well, in, the, in any case, it doesn't really matter. But any, the point is that um, after the new order mass came out, uh, Archbishop took and celebrated the Nova Soro. And he can celebrate the Nova Soro Mass in the cathedral uh, of this bishop in France. And, um, and then shortly thereafter, within a week or two, uh, consecrated Father Gerard Laurier, uh, we are told. And uh, it was um, that consecration uh, that brought Father Sanborn, Father Kelly, and myself to Munich, uh, Germany, to interview the, the two laymen who were present for that consecration, to ask them exactly what they saw, what they heard, and see if they could testify to the matter and form. Uh, in other words, give, give evidence, reliable evidence, that that consecration was in fact a valid consecration. And um, no, Monsignor took uh, you know, I, I mentioned began his career consecrating and ordaining uh, for traditional uh, the traditional faith at Pomeroy Troia. Um, subsequent to that, by the way, he was excommunicated by Paul the Sixth. And there are those who say, well, you know, because it was excommunication by Paul the Sixth, it doesn't count. But I would say, but, but he was excommunicated for doing something that the church excommunicated people for. The traditional church found this to be worthy of excommunication. Um, the Code of Canon Law that had been produced on, during the reign of Pope Pius X was actually put into force during uh, Benedict XV's reign, 1918. Um, specified that uh, if someone received orders outside the church that there would be a suspension immediately while there was an investigation going on. Um, but Pope Pius XII, uh, who was the head of the Holy Office as the, as the Supreme Pontiff, uh, ordered that there be an automatic excommunication for someone who would consecrate or be consecrated. 
without the proper mandate from the Holy See. That was in 1951. Gobias XII ordered this, uh, especially moved by what was happening in China with the communists, as they were consecrating their own their own uh, hierarchy, okay, for the national church, uh, People's Church of China. And um, Pius XII made it very clear that um, one who did this would be excommunicated. And um, in 1958 then, he followed that decree of 1951, he followed that with a, a, an encyclical in 1958, and he made it clearer exactly what his intentions were with that excommunication. By the way, that's an automatic excommunication and, and in the worst form, it's, it's reserved to the authority of the Holy See itself to lift that excommunication. So it's a very ser serious form of excommunication. Not that, not, not that the rest of them are serious. This is the most serious form. And um, But he, he said in the encyclical that an encyclical, an I'm sorry, an Episcopal consecration that was conducted uh, contra omne fas, is the expression he used, <coughs> which means contrary to all Catholic practice. I, I, I don't know, there might be a better translation, but the sense of it is that it is contrary to all the practice of the Church. Um, and that's, that's actually what distinguishes the consecration of a traditional Catholic bishop uh, from the consecrations done by Archbishop Took. Because, um, as you know, uh, Bishop Mendez consecrated Father Kelly a bishop. And uh, so Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated a number of bishops also. But there's a, a very serious difference between those consecrations and the consecrations done by Archbishop Took. Because the consecrations conducted by Archbishop Took really are contra omne fas, as Pope Pius XII pointed out in this encyclical. Well, the consecrations done by Archbishop Lefebvre, and the consecration done by Bishop Mendes, consecration of Bishop Kelly, I don't have contra omne fas, and I'll explain that a little bit. Um, in that, what Archbishop Took did was he wound up consecrating non-Catholics. Um, these non-Catholics um, were those who had actually, in some cases, left the Catholic Church, and even sought ordination to the priesthood and consecration as bishops outside the Catholic Church, with schismatic churches and schismatic bishops. One of them in particular, who was a notorious homosexual activist in Paris, Jean Lavery, Jean Lavery uh, was a beer delivery salesman, uh, and as I say, a very well-known homosexual activist for homosexual rights in Paris. He had actually left the Catholic Church uh, to be ordained a priest, consecrated a bishop by his whiteness Martugdual II of the Celtic Church. And then uh, he wanted to be recognized now as a traditional Catholic bishop. So he wound up uh, uh, having Archbishop Took consecrate him a second time. 
And we know that Archbishop Took knew that Jean Laborie had been consecrated outside the Catholic Church because the document we have on the subject uh, says that Monsieur Took consecrated him sub conditione, that is, conditionally, which you do when you know somebody's already been consecrated. So, um, when, when we asked uh, the two professors, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller, who are the laymen, who are closest to Archbishop Took and very much involved in the consecrations that he did, when we asked him why he would do such a thing, their answer was that Archbishop Took thought that by consecrating him uh, in, as a Catholic bishop, that would make him Catholic again. As again, sort of an admission that he was not Catholic, but we'll consecrate him, and by making him a bishop, we'll consecrate him back into the church again. And of course, this is, this is absurd. I mean, anyone knows this. A school child knows that's not how you make somebody a Catholic, by consecrating him a bishop in the Catholic Church. And so, once again, Archbishop Took's thinking seemed to have been so clouded that if these men, if these men uh, adequately represent his thought, then clearly there was a problem. Um, and they claim that this is what Monsignor, Archbishop Took himself told them, that this was what he was doing, this is what motivated him. Um, in our conversations with them, uh, not only did they explain uh, his motivation even for, for con-celebrating the new Mass uh, with the Novus Ordo Bishop of Toulon and several other Novus Ordo clergymen just before he consecrated um, Monsieur Gardelaurier, or Father Gardelaurier, uh, they said that they asked uh, Archbishop Took, why did you consecrate the new Mass? I mean, just shortly before that, a week or two before, Gerard de Laurier had been to visit Archbishop Took to ask him, do you believe that uh, John Paul II really is the Roman Catholic Pope? And uh, the reason why Gerard de Laurier asked him, he said, is because if you believe that John Paul II is really the Pope, then I can't let you consecrate me, because that would be schismatic. And at that point, the story we got was that uh, Archbishop Took insisted to Father Delorier that he did not believe that John Paul II was a valid, legitimate Roman Catholic pontiff. And with that assurance, Father Delorier agreed to go ahead with the consecration. Then, subsequently, just within a week or two after that, the Archbishop con-celebrates the Novus Ordo in a Novus Ordo cathedral with the bishop and uh, several of his priests. When asked why he would do this, his answer was, according to Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller, <coughs> that he, he had a debt of gratitude to this bishop of the Novus Ordo because he'd given Archbishop Took an apartment to live in and a, and a confessional in the cathedral where he could hear confessions for people. And he felt that he owed it to the Archbishop, the Bishop of Toulon, to do this for him, to come celebrate the new Mass. But not to worry, he said, because 
when it came time for them all to put their hands out and come, come uh, you know, come celebrate and say the words of, well, we call them the words of consecration, he withheld his intention. Now, to, to do that is called simulating a sacrament. It is a sacrilege. It's a very serious sacrilege <coughs> in traditional Catholic moral theology. <coughs> and we go back to this problem, Archbishop doing these things, when he had a doctorate in moral theology. And uh, of all the people who, who should know how, how, how wrong these things are, it would be somebody who had a doctorate in moral theology. And yet he was using these things as an excuse to justify what he was doing. Whereas actually, according to traditional Catholic moral theology, these things were condemning what he was doing as very gravely wrong. They were crimes. Crimes against the, against the faith, crimes against the church. And so there was clearly something wrong with his, with his thinking. Um, you know, he came from the, the oriental part of the world. He came from Vietnam, right? It's proximity to China. I mean, he certainly knew uh, Pope Pius XII's encyclical, uh, which was condemning what the Chinese bishops of the, of the patriotic church were doing. And so he would have known how gravely sinful it was to do these things, consecrating non-Catholics as bishops. Um, yet he went right ahead and did that even somehow convincing himself or, or professing that he made Catholics out of them by consecrating them. Well, I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I actually hope that he really wasn't thinking correctly and he wasn't really uh, compos mentis, fully rational, because that would make him fully responsible for what he did. And if he were really responsible for the, for the crimes that he was committing, the moral consequences for his soul would be very grave. And so, um, Father Noel Barbara, who was a French priest uh, back then, traditional priest, he is known to some of the older traditional Catholics for his writings in a publication called Fortis and Fide, or, um, well, in any case, Father Noel, Noel Barbara actually talked about these tuck consecrations early on. And he said there are basically three possibilities as far as, you know, how we Catholics are supposed to think about them. He said, uh, first of all, it's possible that Monsignor Took, that Archbishop Took was in his right mind and fully responsible for what he did. But if he was fully responsible for what he did, then he would be subject to the uh, uh, to the uh, censures of the church, the punishments of the church, and the excommunication for the, the crimes he committed. Or, uh, Father Barbara said, Archbishop Took was not in his right mind and therefore was relieved of responsibility for what he did, but then that would call into question the validity of the consecrations he did. And the third possibility, Father Barbara said, was that we just don't know and we can't, we can't know. There's no way to decide, which is true. Whether he was in his, he, he was, uh, his mind was composed enough that he was, uh, you know, responsible and therefore subject to the penalties 
for the crimes against the faith that he committed, crimes against the church he committed by his consecrations, or whether he was not sufficiently, uh, shall we say, aware, understanding of what he was doing. Um, we, we just don't know. That's the third possibility, and I, and I think that's, that's the correct one. I think uh, Father Barbara spelled it out pretty quick, pretty, pretty well when he, when he said this. And uh, I would have to say that uh, while we can't say with absolute certitude, of course, that Monsieur took was in his right mind, I mean, obviously there were problems in, the, in what the, the things that he was doing, even with the testimony of the two laymen who were present at the consecration of Garde Laurier, um, the other things that they were telling us that he did really were enough to make any reasonable person question how reasonable Monsignor Took was at that time. So we, we, we have to realize there was a, a, an objective problem with the state of his mind, um, clearly something deficient. Um, but we can't say with absolute certitude that that would have invalidated what he did. So the third, the third alternative is we just don't know and we don't have any way of really solving this problem. The practical result is we can't take these things with the certitude we need uh, in order to uh, risk people's souls on them, you know. The validity of consecrations that he performed, the validity of the ordinations that his bishops did. Uh, one thing that I think is certain though, even though the question of the validity is very doubtful and therefore untouchable, we can't have anything to do with them in practice, uh, what is not doubtful in my mind is that they are not Catholic. Because the church has made it very clear that once someone does something like this, uh, consecrates non-Catholics, uh, he is definitely subject to the censures of the church, and this censure put in place by Pope Pius XII is automatic excommunication, specialissimo modo reservata a Santa Sede. It's most specially reserved to the Holy See itself. That's the penalty for doing such things. As Pope Pius XII says, contra omnefas, against all Catholic practice, which obviously, consecrating non-Catholics, is against all Catholic practice. <clears throat> Archbishop Lefebvre didn't do that. Archbishop Mendez did not do that. They consecrated Catholic priests, Catholic bishops. But only Archbishop Lefebvre uh, took, <clears throat> not only once, but apparently multiple times, consecrated those who were not even members of the Catholic Church. And sometimes the shadiest characters. And so... This really is contrary to all Catholic practice. There's no way to justify this. <coughs> the only question is, is there a way to excuse it with Archbishop Took's responsibility in question? Uh, that's, uh, the fact that it was wrong cannot be denied or ignored. Right? Um, the, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller told us other things also that raised some very serious questions in our minds. Uh, they mentioned that uh, in his apartment, uh, uh, Archbishop Took had, a, had, a, had an altar set up. There was a tiny little apartment, he had an altar set up, he had five cats, and they told us, 
personal experience that during during the mass of Archbishop Took, the cats were wandering, were walking on the altar, and um, uh, they they mentioned a number of other things. But we asked them, well, why would Archbishop Took lower himself to even consecrate, even conditionally consecrate a man like Jean Jean Lapori? And um, one of them said to us, well. Archbishop Took was very poor. He didn't have any money. Now that was that sounded terrible. I think we were so mortified by that that not, none of us asked any follow-up questions because that was really horrible. The suggestion, the implication was really awful. I mean, it was a very clear... Uh, the inference was very clear that he did this for money. That was the answer of... Um, of one of the professors there, that, that that's why he did this consecration. That's very evil to do that. And uh, you can see why I say, I, I hope he wasn't thinking straight. Because if he was, I mean, that's a terrible crime. Um, so, I can say this uh, with, with serious, with real confidence. I can speak for myself, but I think I can also speak uh, for Bishop Kelly, then Father Kelly, and uh, Father Sanborn, I think I can say that we all three went over there with an open mind to really try to find out if we could get the solid evidence we needed that the consecration, at least of Gerard de Laurier, Father de Laurier, was valid. And what did we need to know? We needed the testimony of reliable witnesses um, who could you know, first-hand witnesses who could tell us, yes, this, the matter of, this, of uh, necessary for the valid consecration of a bishop was applied. We could testify, we swear to that fact. And the form was, was, was stated exactly as it is in the pontifical for the consecration of Catholic bishops. Word for word, they could testify, we heard it, we followed it, we heard Archbishop Took uh, uh, state those words in consecrating Father Gerard Laurier so the matter in the form, we say from reliable witnesses who knew what they were saying and knew what they were hearing and uh, could uh, be trusted to testify truthfully that these were done. And uh, we were hoping to get that information. I know I was. Uh, I think Father Sanborn certainly was hoping for that. And uh, Bishop Kelly, uh, at the time, I think... You know, he would have accepted it if we had that solid testimony. After all, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who are taking positions on the Took consecrations, many of them just saying, oh, you can't question them, you can't question them. We're the, only, we're the only ones I know of, at least of the critics, who actually went to find out, actually took the effort to fly across the Atlantic to, to drive to Munich to interview the two men who were present there. To, to, to actually interview them under oath and ask them what they heard and what they saw. We, we, this was our due diligence, you know. And uh, we really tried to get information and tried to get testimony, and what we came away with was very distressing. And rather than finding it reassuring, what we found out was that neither of the two men knew what, what the uh, necessary form for the consecration of bishops would be. Neither of them knew. Neither of them could testify that they even knew what the necessary matter of the consecration was. Now, as you know, 
matter and form are of the very essence of the sacrament, the outward sign. A sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. We learned that when we were studying for our First Holy Communion, second grade, you know, sometimes first grade. <clears throat> and so you have the outward sign of the sacrament. The outward sign consists of the matter and the form, the action and the words, a statement specifying what this means. And uh, to validly consecrate a, a Catholic bishop, there is the the imposition of the hand, signifying the transfer, the giving, conferring of the spiritual power, right? And there are the words of the prayer, in this case the consecratory preface of the ceremony of consecrated mission that have to be stated, stated clearly and exactly. <laughs> when we asked these two gentlemen, who are university professors at the University of Munich, instead, um, and who, I mean, they would have known enough Latin and they had the necessary background and the faith to know what matter and form are and that they're required. We asked them, could they testify that this was done? Or could they, could they testify that, that the Archbishop imposed his hands uh, as the, was required for the validity? Who said so? Well, Pius Twelfth in his decree Sacramentum Ordinis, which is understood to be uh, infallible. He invokes the supreme authority of the apostles, St. Peter and Paul, in, in this decree Sacramentum Ordinis in 1947, stating exactly what is necessary for the valid ordination of a, of a deacon, exactly what is necessary in terms of matter and form for the ordination of a Catholic priest, and exactly what is necessary for the consecration of a Catholic bishop. Well, Pius XII spells it all out, and he says these are the things that are required and necessary for the validity. So he made it very clear, and we tried to make it very clear to these two men. Not only couldn't they could they not tell us what constituted the matter and form, but when we asked them, well, and when we told them what the matter and the form were for the consecration of a bishop, <clears throat> neither of them could tell us. <clears throat> that they had actually happened, that the Archbishop took it actually said those words, or had performed this action, imposing the hands on the head. Neither one of them could tell us that this was done. Uh, all that we were told was, well, he was following the pontifical. Well, actually, we didn't even get that. One of them was saying he was following the ritual. He was following the ritual, the rituale, the rituale, the rituale. Well, the, the, the ceremony of consecrating a bishop isn't in the rituality. It's in the pontificality, okay? So again, I mean, the testimony we were getting was, was not reassuring, because it's clear they didn't know. In fact, the gentleman we, we interviewed in the evening, uh, we asked him, well, I mean, were you instructed ahead of time? And this is very important, because they both said that at the insistence of Archbishop Took, all the other laymen who were present were told to leave the room. They were made to leave the room. So the only ones left in the room when Gerard Laurier was consecrated was Archbishop Took, Father Gerard Laurier, and these two laymen. Everybody else was ordered out of the room by Archbishop Took. And so the question uh, seemed very important. It seemed to kind of compel us to ask, uh, were you instructed 
as to what constituted the form and what constituted the matter, and were you prepared to actually witnesses? And they said to us, we were not witnesses. They denied being witnesses. They were there to light the candles and turn pages when they were told, and, but they did not know what was going on, really, to know certainly what the matter in form was. They weren't instructed. They told us that. They said they did not know what it was. They were not told what it was. They were not told to look for that, to verify it, to be able to testify it. Nothing, okay? They themselves acknowledged that. So the fact is that uh, they were not witnesses there, okay? They could not testify. Uh, and what testimony they, they could give and did give, again, was not reassuring at all. Uh, to the point that on the drive back afterwards, I, I asked uh, Father Sanborn um, what he made of the, the statements of the two men, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller. And Father Sanborn said at the time that while he personally had the confidence in Father Gerard Laurier that he, Father Laurier, would have uh, been certain, made certain, that the consecration was valid. His subjective, Father Sanborn's subjective certitude, uh, coming from his confidence in Gerard Laurier, was not enough to impose that on the souls of all the people. So he could not expect the others in the world to follow that. His personal expectation that uh, Gerard Laurier would have, you know, somehow guaranteed the validity of his own consecration. He said, that's not enough to go on. And uh, that told me very, very clearly that Father Sanborn had come away uh, again without the necessary testimony uh, because uh, he was basically discounting the testimony of these two men and saying that, well, his confidence was in Gerard Laurier, that he said, I was consecrated validly, so that's good enough for him. But that was his own personal confidence. You can't, that doesn't give you any objective certitude. He was acknowledging that at the time. Did he change his mind afterwards? Yes. Why? I think because of, of, of a serious but simple mistake that was being made that really now comes down to this work by Mario Dirksen. Mario is making the same mistake. And sometimes very bright people, and I consider Mario to be a pretty bright person. Uh, Father Sanborn, I consider him to be a very, very bright individual. But sometimes uh, very bright people can talk them into things, can, can make an argument either way. Uh, they can make very convincing arguments for and against. And actually, Father Sanborn was very much against and then became very much for. And uh, this is one of the hazards of being very intelligent. You, know? uh, you can basically talk yourself and other people into even opposite sides from one moment to the next of uh, 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 the argument. And I think they're, they're both missing something really essential. Um, that um, the, 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 the whole argument kind of turns on, uh, on something that they're uh, trying to make a big case out of. And um, whether they would acknowledge that their case crumbles, uh, you know, when this is pointed out, I don't know.
But it, that's what it seems to me. It does crumble away, mm. totally. Mm. Um, in any case, there are a number of other things that could be said about, you know, Monsignor Took and his state of mind, uh, the doubtfulness of it all, um, the criminality of what he did. Um, but uh, I mean, for the time being, perhaps you better leave it at that. Uh, as I say, there's a lot more. Bishop Kelly um, gives uh, some of the uh, information in his book, The Sacred and the Profane, which is definitely worth reading, okay? But uh, I think there's a lot more that should be said beyond what Bishop Kelly has in the book. I would say that um, uh, regarding the Took consecrations, they are doubtfully valid, but certainly not Catholic, because they contravene uh, the continual and the, uh, traditional practice of the Church. So well, uh, that's where I'll stop in this uh, right. in responding to what you what you asked me to do and give you a little background. Sure, sure. Well, Father, this is all fascinating information. I think it's important for our viewers to hear this because they won't find any of that. And, and say Mario Dirksen's study. There's there's none of that, none of the, the problems really are confronted. And it seems that uh, rather than go point by point through Mario's study, it seems that, um, perhaps this is what you alluded to, but it, it seems that his whole entire basis um, of, of his objection to the Society of St. Pius V position is that these consecrations occurred, and therefore they're what the church considers a notorious fact. And since they're a notorious fact, we have to consider them valid and licit. And uh, the Society of St. Pius V rather, takes the opposite position and says these consecrations were not notorious facts, and therefore the burden of proof rests on those who perform the consecrations to prove their validity. And so Mario Dirksen takes this opposite side and says, these are notorious facts, therefore we have to uh, assume that, that they are valid. And so the burden of proof then lies on the Society of St. Pius V to prove that these consecrations were not valid, and Mario says that cannot be done. But at the same time, uh, if you kind of flip things and look at it from, from the other position, it, uh, it, it doesn't seem, seem to make a whole lot of sense because where he's saying there isn't sufficient evidence to disprove them, it, it kind of seems like a, a contradiction of sorts. So I'm just, just curious, could, could you give us perhaps the correct definition of what a notorious fact is? Well, when, when the church talks about what is notorious, like a, a crime, it is uh, widely, it is generally widely known by people, okay? There is an occult fact which might be known by only a small number of discrete people who are not going to talk about it, okay? But a notorious fact is something that is generally widely known and widely accepted as true. Simple, simply, that sums it up right there. Uh, with regard to Mario's work, the open letter, you can see early on that he's not really thinking clearly. I mean, early on in his work, he talks about how unreliable the Novus Ordo is. He talks about how unreliable the authorities of the Novus Ordo are and how they cannot be trusted in their assessment of things, especially with regard to the sacraments. Then he makes an argument that they accept, even the Novus Ordo accepts the, the, the fact of the took consecrations, uh, 
And he tries to use that as evidence to prove that they happened, therefore. Right. Look, they're notorious among the people of the Novosordo, the hierarchy of the Novosordo. And because they're notorious with the Novosordo hierarchy, that means that they have to be accepted as factual, even though Mario has just said they're totally unreliable in their judgment of these things. So which, what way does Mario want to use this? I mean, where is he going with this? But what, Father, what about, what about as Mario says, uh, Bishop Kelly himself accepts that the consecrations actually occurred, they actually took place? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I accept the fact that th there was a ceremony, something happened. Archbishop Turk did something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, to men who understood that they were being consecrated bishops. There's no question about that. Uh, so when I, when I say that, um, you know, when I'm, I'm talking about Mario's assessment of the judgment of the Novus Ordo, right, I'm just saying he's contradicting himself right. in making this, this, this argument about how notoriously, notoriously unreliable the Novus Ordo is, and how then they accept the notoriety of these facts, and therefore we, we have to accept them as being notoriously true. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, but, but in any case, um, with regard to um, the notorious facts, what is notorious is that there were these ceremonies that were conduct conducted, mm -hmm. okay? And basically, nobody's arguing that fact. Nobody's arguing against it. I mean, neither Bishop Kelly, nor, uh, nor I, nor Father Sanborn, when he was dead set against these things and condemning them, and even Father uh, Chicada, when he was absolutely against these things, because Father Sanborn and Father Chicada were the ones who were condemning these things left and right, as Father, Father Sanborn said, we can't have anything to do with these things because they're so sordid. Right. You know, the rest of us were a little bit more measured in this, but these two were really hammering the took consecrations that they would have nothing to do with them ever, you know, it was out of the question. And uh, for them to go from really one extreme to another, right. you know, it's, it's amazing to watch and rather distressing to watch. <clears throat> now they both, uh, you know, just uh, justify them and, uh, and condemn those who don't, curiously enough, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, in, in any case, all during this time, uh, Father Kelly wasn't saying these things never happened, you know, there's no truth to any of this, it's uh, photographs, no, 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 uh, you know, these are, these are complete uh, photoshopped uh, fabrications. He never said that. I never said that. We all acknowledge, okay, Archbishop took, uh, did do these ceremonies. Yeah? But that's not the, the same as saying that they're valid. The notorious fact is that there was this uh, string of ceremonies done by Archbishop Took, the question of their validity is another question entirely. You see, that's where Mario goes on, uh, again, led by the, the false assumptions of Father Sanborn and Father Chicago. That's where Mario goes on to make another argument. <clears throat> and that's the argument that is completely false. Um, and and that, that argument is, okay, once you have established that a ceremony took place, you have to assume that it was valid. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Right. That's absolutely not true. And, and furthermore, they know it's not true. They, they wouldn't accept that. Right. 
I mean, if, if somebody uh, came to them and said, <clears throat> look, I have pictures of myself being consecrated a bishop by whoever, right? And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm testifying, testifying to the fact that I was consecrated, under oath, I'll testify, I was consecrated a bishop by so-and-so, and you can't prove I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay, so they have some photographs, uh, that this now deceased bishop consecrated, uh, you know, apparently this person, would they just automatically accept that it was valid without any question? That's absurd. I mean, anybody could do that. Right. You know? I mean, you could show up and say and insist that I was consecrated. Right. And you could probably get a couple of people to show up with you and say, yes, yes, I, I insist that he was consecrated by so-and-so. And... -so. and uh, it's now a notorious fact. Why? Because we spread it on YouTube, right? So lots of people believe it's true, and uh, we even have some photographs that there was a ceremony that took place. Hmm. They wouldn't accept that. Right. They would demand proof. Mm -hmm. right? And and one of the, the, the proofs that, that Mario gives are the sworn testimony of the two individuals, the, the two witnesses, and then also Archbishop Took himself and... Mm -hmm. The, the, the priest being consecrated. And so they were right. right. So the principals involved here. Right. Um, two of whom said they didn't know what was necessary to make a valid uh, bishop. You know? right. But you see, um, the argument, even the argument that if there's a notorious fact that there was a ceremony, it must therefore be accepted as valid, is not true. Um, especially in this particular, in this case, the case of the Took uh, consecrations, and here's why, okay? Um, Mario, following the lead, as I say, of Father Sanborn and Father Chicada and other sources that they, were, they brought in, goes through a string of theologians who ask, what kind of uh, testimony do we need concerning the uh, validity of a ceremony that was performed, okay? Mm -hmm. What about where we don't have the testimony that you would ordinarily have, okay? Let's say uh, you don't have the, the book that has the names and the dates and the places of the ceremony, okay, signed by the competent authority. Well, we, we don't have that evidence. He's making the, the, uh, the inference from these different authors, Father Sullivan and others, um, that the church just accepts them as being valid. Once it is acknowledged that there was a ceremony, the, the validity is presumed. That's their argument, okay? So if I acknowledge, okay, there was a ceremony, okay, and there was a ceremony of uh, Episcopal consecration, as we're told, once I acknowledge that that actually happened, I have to assume that it's valid. And they have to prove that it wasn't valid. Now, they're failing to make an extremely important distinction here. That all of those authors who talk about what's necessary to prove, that the ceremony took place and therefore you have to accept it as being valid, are, test are, are talking about a ceremony that was conducted within the canonical framework of the Catholic Church. They were all done by... Uh, bishops of the Catholic Church, for example, who are acting in their official capacity as not only members of the hierarchy, but in their official capacity in their stations as, let's say, the ordinary of this diocese, you know? Yeah. 
ordaining priests for his diocese or whatever. Maybe the records were destroyed in the fire. What testimony would you have to have to prove that yes, he uh, ordained these priests and yes, they are validly ordained uh, as Catholic priests? All of those authorities that he mentions in there, in his open letter, are testifying about uh, bishops ordaining and consecrating within the realm of their approved functions within the Catholic Church, uh, we would say within, within the, the, the standard operating procedure, the canon, they're all canonically done. Okay? Mm-hmm. None of these consecrations that we're talking about, including Archbishop of Fabs, including Bishop Mendes's, were done as standard operating procedure exactly. within the realm of the normal operating procedures of the Catholic Church. And they were done as we modu proprio. I mean, Archbishop took um, took it upon himself to do these consecrations. He wasn't uh, acting in any official capacity as the Archbishop of so-and-so with the responsibility for ordaining priests for this diocese or anything of the kind. He was acting outside that framework. Doesn't make it wrong. Bishop Mendes did the same. He consecrated also, uh, taking upon himself the responsibility to do so. But he wasn't doing so in any official capacity in the Catholic Church, as let's say he had been the, the, the ordinary of the Diocese of Arecibo, a diocese that he, he actually formed. Um, if as the acting as the bishop, the Catholic bishop of, of the Diocese of Arecibo, he had ordained priests, consecrated bishops, and let's say the records had been consumed in a fire, so another question was, well, what testimony do we need? What assurance do we need? Maybe Archbishop, maybe Bishop Mendes is dead, so he can't testify himself now. So how can we establish the fact with the records that having been destroyed in the fire, how can we establish that these consecrations took place? The fact is, you find the necessary testimony that while he was acting in his capacity as the Catholic Bishop of Arecibo, he did this. And yes, you do assume Okay, well then it would be valid, okay? But when someone like Archbishop Dirk takes upon himself to say, I'm going to consecrate so-and-so, I'm going to consecrate so-and-so, motu propria, on my own, on my own authority, whatever that is, just because I'm a bishop, I can do this validly. But I'm not acting within the framework of, of any, my canonical authority within the church. I'm just doing this because I believe it's right and necessary. That's a very different story. That you don't have the official records, you don't have anybody acting in his official capacity with authority that you know uh, of, of an office he holds within the church. You understand what I'm what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to be uh, trying to make it very clear sure. for those who might not be able to follow what I'm saying, especially because I with a cold I'm, uh, I I want to be sure that I, that I'm speaking clearly. Sure. There's a that, that's a, a massive difference. That's a total difference. And um, so whatever testimonies uh, Mario brings, brings in here applies to um, a very different set of circumstances than any of these consecrations of traditional bishops. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit there. Here you need some kind of authority. You need testimony. Mm-hmm. You need testimony to guarantee to you that these were done correctly, properly. Especially in the case of Archbishop Took, when it was clear that he was not functioning uh, very well, you know, that his mind was not very clear. You really need uh, certitude 
um, to to um, rule out the possibility of invalidity here and to guarantee that there was these were performed validly. And if you know, it's, it's not expecting too much to say I need to see that the matter and the form and the intention were there. If um, If I were, let's say, the Archbishop of Milwaukee, okay, back in the 1940s, and I had ordinations for priests for my diocese, and it was all done according to my official capacity as the Archbishop, ordinary authority of the church there in, in the diocese of, Archdiocese of Milwaukee. The fact that I had those ordinations would be guarantee enough for the church that they were valid. Because I was acting in my official capacity. And the church would say, not just anybody could question them. You might have, uh, you know, Farquhar Smith, who sneezes during the words of, uh, you know, the, the consecratory preface and, and doesn't hear them. Right? And because he doesn't hear them, or he hears them interrupted because of his sneeze, he stands up and says, well, I didn't hear that. I'm questioning the validity of these, of these ordinations. Of course, everyone would look at him and say, well, that's too bad that you didn't hear it. You, don't, you have no standing to question this, because you're the, the archbishop, uh, the ordinary of the diocese, acting as the Catholic bishop of this diocese, consecrating priests for his diocese, and so on and so forth. And so, yes, there is certainly the strong presumption that this was done validly, okay? And you'd have to have a special standing. For example, the archpriest who was there at the bishop's right the master of ceremonies, or somebody who was, who was there in the ceremony whose official capacity gave him the necessary standing to question it. And say, so I have a specific, clear reason for questioning. This was missing. Something essential was done wrong. Okay? But that's not what you have here. You have consecrations here that were done in private rooms, private dwellings, a handful of people present, um, not with canonical authority, in the sense that they were not done with the official capacity of uh, someone uh, holding an office of authority within the Catholic Church. Using the power of orders, yes, but certainly with no mandate from the Holy See. In a case like that, you do need reliable testimony from trustworthy witnesses. That's actually something that is mentioned by the, um, the writers that Mario quotes. You know. <coughs> Father Sullivan makes a point of that. You, know. you have to have the trustworthy witnesses there. Now I know Father Sanborn made a kind of joking mockery of Bishop Kelly's statement, you need a competent and qualified witnesses. But the fact is, reading the sources that Mario himself brings forward, they do say, like Father Sullivan says, you need absolutely trustworthy witnesses. Well, trustworthy means that you can trust their testimony to be true. 
And it means uh, not only that they're not deceiving you, but they know what they're talking about. So they know what is necessary to make, uh, to consecrate a bishop validly. They know what the matter is. They know what the form is. They know the matter and the form were in fact applied. That's what makes them trustworthy witnesses. Um, so it is altogether wrong for Father Sanborn and Father Chicada to mock the idea that you need qualified witnesses. Qualified meaning simply that they are trustworthy, that they know what the matter and the form is without any doubt, and they can testify uh, truthfully and competently, you know, so that you have, you have complete confidence that what they're saying is the truth, that it really happened, that the matter and the form really took, were, were applied properly. I would call that a qualified qualify witness, you know. And um, there, there are not qualified witnesses with, when it comes down to the, um, to the two consecrations. There's simply, and in particular with the consecration of Gard Laurier, uh, and it goes, it goes back to what Father Samuel was saying, that what it came down to for him, after hearing what Dr. Hiller and Dr. Hiller said, is that he, Father Sanborn, has a high enough regard for Father Gerard de Laurier, as well as he knew him, that he would have certainly made sure that his consecration was valid, but that's all he had to go by. And that wasn't enough mm-hmm. to uh, involve all of these souls in, the, in that question of the validity of the consecration of those bishops and those priests that came from those consecrations. And actually, I agree with him completely. I personally don't have that consec- that that uh, personal, let's shall we say, um, confidence in Father Gerard Laurier um, the, for a number of reasons. I mean, Father Sanborn can be personally convinced. Okay, I, you know, as far as he's concerned, if Father Gerard Laurier says that he was validly consecrated a bishop, then Father Sanborn is convinced that it's true. Okay, that's his subjective certitude. Uh, for me. It's not there. Why? Well, um, Father Gerard Laurier went to Archbishop Took to say, if you believe that John Paul II is a valid pope, I can't let you consecrate me because, consecrate me because that would be schismatic. We had the testimony of uh, Father Barbara on the subject, actually. And uh, Father uh, Archbishop Took insisted, no, I don't believe John Paul II is a valid pope. After that, Father uh, Archbishop Turk consecrates the Novus Ordo. Uh, 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 yes, he, uh, he can celebrates the Novus Ordo. Okay. Shortly after that, he goes to consecrate Gratulorier. And while he's consecrating Gratulorier, and this here we do have the testimony of the men who were present there, because this they did hear, and this they could testify to, that. Uh, Monsignor took was invoking the name of John Paul II, mandating the consecration of Gerard Laurier. And Gerard Laurier, according to these gentlemen, is interrupting Archbishop Took while he's in the act of consecrating him, telling Archbishop Took, you can't say that. Remember, you don't believe he's the Pope, and he certainly didn't authorize you to consecrate me. <coughs> this is what Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller had to say that this was going on during that consecration. It doesn't inspire an awful lot of confidence. And then, subsequently, um, 
the testimony was, again, that Father Gardelaurier did not seek and did not obtain from Archbishop Took the documentation to show that he had been consecrated. I mean, we, we have something that purports to be a, a document, but it is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of some document supposedly written in Monsignor Took's uh, own hand in Latin, right? In very simple Latin, that he had consecrated uh, Father Carmona and Father Zamora, okay, mm -hmm. bishops. Not Gord Laurier. There's no document that has been produced, not even a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy that I know of, to say that from Archbishop Turk saying, I consecrated Gord Laurier. It's just that Father Gord Laurier, Gord Laurier was talking about that he had consecrated him. And uh, this to me would seem to be so obvious that if you were going to be consecrated a traditional Catholic bishop, you would, you would insist there be some kind of documentation. When a parent has a baby baptized, you know, one of the paramount concerns that the parent has is, I want the documentation about the baptism of a child. So if you have somebody who's got a doctorate in theology, um, uh, whether it be dogmatic or moral or sacramental or whatever, um, I mean, you'd think that they would say, okay, I need some kind of documentation to this fact, right? But no, not there. And then subsequently it was discovered that uh, Father Grant Laurier had a, had a brain tumor. And uh, it eventually took his life. And it, it, it actually uh, happened here in rapid succession to the consecration. So again, it gives rise to the, to the, to the understanding that neither Archbishop Took nor Father Grant Laurier were, were acting with perhaps the plenitude of their powers, their mental powers. And it might explain why Gerard Laurier would say to him, I will not be consecrated by you if you believe John Paul II is truly the Catholic Pope. And then having received the, received the assurance that uh, Monsignor Turk didn't believe in the papacy of John Paul II, and during the consecration then the, uh, Monsignor Turk is invoking the name of John Paul II, why Gerard Laurier didn't say then, well, I told you I cannot accept consecration from you if this is what you think. But he went ahead with it anyway. Having said just a few weeks before, I can't. It would be schismatic. And, and as I say, never even asking for a documentation to the effect you know, that, that this happened. So um, the argument that we, if we accept the fact that there was a ceremony that took place, um, the Catholic um, canonists and moral theologians say that we, there's Catholic practice to automatically accept the validity as a fact. <coughs> uh, certainly, that does not apply to these consecrations. The consecration of uh, Father Kelly by Bishop Mendez needs testimony from those who are competent to testify, yes. I know what the matter is, I know what the form is, I can testify, even under oath, that these took place, that these actually did happen. Uh, there, are, there is that testimony for Bishop Mendes' consecration of Bishop Kelly. There, again, are plenty of eyewitnesses with regard to the consecrations um, done by Monsieur Lefebvre, okay? Uh, with regard to Archbishop Took. You have things going on that 
do not apply to the consecrations of uh, Father Kelly, Bishop Kelly, or the uh, Society of St. Pius X Bishops. Mm -hmm. That are unique to the Turk consecration and that are very troubling and uh, basically should tell any conscientious Catholic person we cannot um, risk our souls and the souls of our children on these. There are just too many problems. Father Sanborn summed it up years ago by saying it's too sordid. Then I would, I would use a, a different word. Not only is it sordid because of all of the chicanery going on and so on, I would say it is, again, dubiously valid to say the least, but certainly not Catholic. And uh, if, the, if the decree of the Holy Office at the direction of Pope Pius the, the 12th in 1951, if it, if it applies to anything, it must apply to the Turk consecrations and consecrating non-Catholics. Mm -hmm. Because that is something the Church has always and everywhere condemned as being contrary to all Catholic practice, contrary to all Catholic tradition. The Church has never approved of such a thing being done by any Catholic bishop, that, she would cons that a Catholic bishop would consecrate a non-Catholic. Search the, the history of the Church and come up with one example of a case where a Catholic bishop um, consecrated a non-Catholic bishop, and the Church accepted that and, uh, and, and did not excommunicate for it. Find an example of that. No one has been able to find an example. I've been asking and asking, challenging them to find an, one example of this. And no one has done so. And yet, they, they merrily carry on with the Archbishop took consecrations as though there was no problem. Uh, but there, there, there's very, there are serious problems with them. Sure. And Father, I'd, I'd like to, to point something out for, for our viewers because it seems a recurring theme that the society will get asked this question of, why have why has the society never issued a response to Mario Dirksen's study to his to his open letter? Why has the society never issued a response? Is this because there is no response? Is the uh, is this a, a sign of weakness on the part of the society? That seems to be a, a constant reoccurring question that the society gets. But I'd just like to point out that Mario's open letter is a response to Bishop Kelly's. Uh, statement on the matter in, in his book, The Sacred and the Profane. Mm -hmm. So really everything that needs to be said is, is already said in Bishop Kelly's book. And that's, I'd recommend that to all of our viewers. You can find that just by, by a quick Google search online. It's available. Um, but but it, that, that book right there says everything. It already answers all of Mario's points, everything that he raises. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the society has, has never really issued a response because there's no need for one. Well, so I think you're right. I think in Bishop Kelly's book, The Sacred and the Profane, the, the response is there. It, it may be implicit right. in what Bishop Kelly says, but it's there. It's there. And, uh, you know, I mean, Mario really has no standing theologically to pronounce uh, judgment on this matter. I mean, he's giving his thoughts. Um, He's not a theologian uh, by any means, okay? And he's just producing this. And it, it's kind of a, a measure of the poverty, the theological poverty of the traditional Catholic groups that they look to that work right. as though it's sort of like the, the end all and the be all, right. and it's the last word on the question. Mm -hmm. And is, it is just rans it, it is riddled with flaws. Right. Why don't we point that out? 
Every time, every time we, we issue some kind of response to something like that, somebody comes up with something else. And frankly, we're, we're busy trying to take care of souls. And if people want to say, oh, Mario Dirksen has answered all my questions about the two bishops, and this is the infallible answer to the question. And because the priests of the Society of St. Pius V are not responding to Mario Dirksen or this person or that person or that person, whoever is putting something out on the subject, it shows that they're actually conceding the issue and they have nothing to say. And, um, well, you know, it gets to the point where you just have to say, look, I, I've got other things to do. Mm -hmm. I cannot be constantly dealing with this issue. Um, I mean, Father Valencourt uh, put up with uh, something, what was his book, The Question, or The Answer to the Questions, yeah. or like he was going to answer all the questions with regard to the Fifth Bishops. Yeah. And basically, he didn't, okay? <laughs> he, he just didn't. He just didn't address the questions. Okay. He didn't even address the questions that are really important to us. You know? mm. So he'd set up these straw man questions and knock them down. And, you know, people were waving the book as though, oh, look, you know, we have all the answers here. If they read the book, they say, look, I have the book that answers all the questions. And that can go on and on and on. So it's like a bottomless pit. Mm -hmm. And you'd think, okay, any thoughtful person is going to say, Mario Dirksen is not the person to answer this question, okay? He doesn't have this, the standing or the competence to really answer the question. So he may be touring the country giving speeches about his open letter, and pontificating about it. But, you know, you would hope that the people who have the good, the good basic sense to realize would say, well, you know, there's more to it than this, and uh, <clears throat> there, there's clearly something missing here. Um, I'm going to go read Bishop Kelly's book and find out what he had to say about it in the first place, because I'm, I'm reading a response to it. Mm -hmm. So I ought to go read the original and then have some questions and start asking some questions, some serious questions. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who just didn't bother doing that. And I think the reason is because they, they, they've already made up their minds what they want to do. I mean, they just don't want to question. They want to accept because it's convenient for them. Mm -hmm. um, that is one reason why I, I just haven't uh, devoted the, the hours of time to laboriously produce a page-by-page, paragraph-by-paragraph, line-by-line refutation of Mario's point here. It's because I'm actually very, uh, I mean, involved in, in justifying and sanctifying souls by the power of the sacraments. Uh, I've got a lot going on. And uh, I, furthermore, don't think it would reduce any good. If I could, if I could produce the most brilliant, which I can't, but the most brilliant piece of literature in English to refute, um, hands down, everything Mar Mar uh, Mario said there, people are going to basically, is what I've discovered, do what is convenient for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't really care about the arguments. Right. You know? Uh, they're just looking for basically a veneer of scholarship, mm -hmm. like uh, a lot of people are with the with the mass. You know, they say, okay, as long as I say Dominus Viscum, that's the traditional mass. That's where I'm going to go. Uh, they don't look any farther. As long as it's a little Latin, that's that's what I want to hear. That's that's how I see it with the the Turk bishops. There are people who just uh, want want something to point at and say, okay, that answers all the questions. 
And so uh, they're going to go with that. And they don't want to hear anything to the contrary. So when people have come and asked questions, I've been willing to talk to them and, and to tell them what I think about this. Um, and pretty much I've left it at that. But to come up with some monium opus, uh, I think it's just glorifying something that is uh, not really uh, to be glorified. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is kind of treating uh, un very unsatisfactory arguments um, in a way that they really don't deserve, with a the respect they don't deserve. Sure. Uh, so, if people have questions, if people really want to know, uh, I, I'm glad to respond to them. Okay. And, Father, I, I think if there's one thing that this situation, this whole case has taught us, it's the necessity of authority, of an mm. infallible voice to decree mm. on matters such as this. I mean, I guess the Novus Ordo Church has, has produced their, their pronouncement on it already, but um, we'll, we'll take that for what well, it's not, worth. Well, not really. They haven't really produced it. They don't have a pronouncement on it. Well, they, they excommunicated yeah, they excommunicated Gerard uh, uh, Laurier, or rather, I'm sorry, uh, Archbishop Took for what he did at, um, at Palmer de Troya, mm -hmm. and they excommunicated him subsequently also. Um, to use that as an argument uh, for the validity of these things, that the Novus Ordo accepts them, is absurd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially after you've made the argument that they, they can't even judge the validity of their own sacraments, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, 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 that is nonsensical. Mm -hmm. um, but um, to say that the, the Novus Ordo uh, just unreservedly accept the validity of the Took consecrations is false. Right. Um, and even if they did, I would say that lends no credibility whatsoever to the validity of the took consecrations because we're questioning the validity of their own new sacraments. Mm -hmm. So, again, when a supporter of the took consecrations uses that or tries to use that as an argument, what that demonstrates to me is the poverty of their position, that they're grasping for straws. Absolutely. And there are quite a number of examples that I could give you of such arguments by the Took supporters of grasping for straws, uh, arguments that are just manifestly, embarrassingly uh, bad. But I will spare you that, maybe for another program. Um, their position is, is not good. And the fact that uh, people are relying on this open letter of Mario Dirksen as their sort of uh, uh, Das Kapital or Mein Kampf or whatever to have on the shelf, you know, to point to as their uh, great uh, theological analysis of the situation and giving them, you know, the answers they need to place their souls, rest their souls' salvation on this. I think, again, shows just how desperate their situation really is. Mm -hmm. And you say, Father, that, that, that you're busy with justifying and sanctifying and, and attempting to, to save souls. Mm -hmm. So what, how, how does this matter affect, say, the average soul who, who uh, maybe attends the took-line masses and receives their sacraments? Perhaps they've, they've been raised in this. Their family goes to these, mm -hmm. the, the took-line mm -hmm. um, 
masses, masses and sacraments, what should an individual in that situation do? Well, well I, th I think you should really acknowledge that there are some very serious uh, questions about this, ob objective doubts about the validity. Uh, as I say, I don't think there's a doubt about the Catholicity. I think it's <laughs> totally not Catholic. Because behind this all, and at the root of it all, uh, are actions that the Church has condemned as crimes against the faith, crimes against the Church, and for which the Church excommunicates automatically, in the most specially way, reserved to the authority of the Holy See. And I don't care whether one recognizes John, uh, John Paul II as a true pope, or Paul VI as a true pope, or anything. The fact is that the Church traditionally has very grave censures for doing what Archbishop Turk did. And that doesn't depend upon Paul VI, or doesn't depend upon John XXIII, John doesn't depend upon John Paul II. This is the Church's practice. This is the tradition of the Church to condemn what, what he did. And they just have to accept that Catholic tradition condemns what Archbishop Turk did. Um, and uh, so, the, the, you know, once somebody does such a thing, commits such a crime as consecrating a non-Catholic, contrary to all Catholic practice, and that person is excommunicated, he can't function as a Catholic bishop. He can't just say, oh, well, this time I'll do it right. This time I'll find a Catholic to consecrate. You know, I'll start consecrating Catholic bishops now. Once he does that, and he, that is his state, that is his state, as excommunicated, specialissimo, and most specially reserved to the Holy See. He can't just say, oh shucks, you know, I think I'll start consecrating Catholics now. Mm -hmm. And think he's functioning as a Catholic bishop, you know. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, I know, I know, Father Sanborn, Father Chicada especially, brings us this. Now, you know, uh, um, you know, you can't contract uh, cooties from the one that you uh, eat, and that's sort of using expression, because the one who consecrates you, you know, he has this problem, he just doesn't pass it on to you. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, if you're consecrated by somebody who's not functioning as a Catholic bishop, uh, yeah, there isn't a problem with that consecration, and that doesn't make you a Catholic bishop mm -hmm. yourself. Um, even if it were valid, it wouldn't make you a Catholic bishop. But especially in a case like this, uh, at the root of all of this is uh, clearly uh, a very troubled mind. Uh, even Hiller and Heller said that. We asked them, you know, why would Archbishop took, uh, do these, these things? I mean, I told you about one of them said, well, he didn't have the money. Um, for the in other words, the consecration of this, this one consecration he did, that was the answer. Why would he do that? Well, he was very poor, he didn't have any money. But when we asked him in general, why would he do these things? Why would he make an argument, for example, that I will take somebody who left the Catholic Church, went and got himself ordained and consecrated outside the Catholic Church for the schismatic sect, and then I'm going to conditionally consecrate him and make him a Catholic again. How could uh, Archbishop Took, with his academic background, how could he do that? You know what they said? He said he had the mind of a child. He had the mind of a child. You know, that raises all kinds of serious questions. <laughs> when it comes to administering the sacraments, especially sacraments so grave, with such grave responsibilities, in the mind of a child, 
And again, you know, the Tuck supporters are just willing to, oh, well, that doesn't matter. You know, he didn't mean it that way. Uh, why don't they inquire farther to find out exactly what that means and what the practical consequences of that might be? I mean, these are two men who were ground zero at his consecrations, who were closest to him probably of all the people in the world at the time. <coughs> and this is what they say, the mind of a child. Um, I, if it were my soul, the souls of those uh, I care about, let's face it, I mean, I'd like to think I care about all the souls, including those who are following the Turk line, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them at risk um, by subjecting them to that. And so I would tell them, look, uh, you have to acknowledge that there, there are serious problems and very objective uh, doubts, not just subjective doubts, uh, Father Sanborn said he had subjective certitude, um, but that's one thing. We're talking here about not just subjective doubts, we're talking about objective doubts that would give any rational person a reason to pause and concern about the practical consequences in terms of the validity of these things. And the Church's teaching is you cannot risk your soul when it comes to doubtful sacraments like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to find out what is certainly valid. Um, at least uh, in terms of, of, of not having objective doubts and reasons, serious questions that would um, jeopardize the or call into question the validity. I mean, one can question anything, you know, but that would pass from being an objective doubt to a merely a subjective doubt because somebody starts thinking, well, what if this, and what if that, and what about the other thing, and, and get into the land of fantasy. But we're talking about actual facts that are conceded by virtually everybody, supporters <clears throat> and opponents, <clears throat> as facts and what the consequences are, and I think they lead one to say, look, I cannot risk my soul and the souls of my loved ones on these very sordid, dubious consecrations uh, emanating from Archbishop Took. So I have to find um, consecrations that are uh, undoubtedly valid and definitely Catholic and simply confine my Catholic practice, the practice of my faith, to those. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would tell anybody who's uh, invested, as it were, in the, in the Took Bishops. I mean, that's what I would tell the Took bishops themselves. You know, don't put your own souls at risk and risk the souls of others by um, these false arguments. You're trying to justify the unjustifiable, and you're trying to uh, uh, simply dismiss the serious questions that are asked about validity. Um, by ignoring them, if you can't answer them, and bringing up a, a whole smokescreen of, of false objections that you can knock down, that don't even apply to the question. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, well. as, I, as I say, Tom, there's so much more that could be said, but I, I, I don't 
to know that we really want to get into all that. Right <laughs> maybe in the future. Right. You know, if, if there are people, for example, who hear this program and they send in questions, specific questions, then we can start addressing those questions. Mm -hmm. But right now, I think probably we've said enough. Definitely. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, hopefully we've, we've been able to clear some of these questions up. But if, if nothing else, at least get people uh, to, to kind of question it and look into it a little more. I, I would, I would hope so. At least that. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, anyway, Father, I'd like to thank you for being here tonight and taking the time to, uh, to share your information with us. You're so, very welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for being here as well. Yeah. And if any of our viewers have specific questions that they would like to ask concerning this topic of the, uh, the Took line and the Took consecrations, those can be sent to our email address. And I would also recommend um, Father, at that time, Father, now Bishop Kelly, his book, uh, The Sacred and the Profane, uh, that can be found online uh, just by a simple Google search. But until next time, I'd like to thank you all for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. I'd also ask all of our viewers to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to pray, to, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.